0: Welcome to exercise medicine i think this is podcast number seven uh, today we have dr shahidi who is a uh, doctor of physical therapy and also a phd um our org is exercise medicine and uh, both our organization and this podcast purpose is to raise awareness about exercise and nutrition as a means of maintaining health and preventing disease uh, we also aim to promote professional interests and development with a focus on the various careers of sports medicine and just to be clear uh, the information we talk about today is for entertainment purposes only we are not medical professionals and as such, it is not to be misconstrued as medical advice. Uh, and so I'll start off with a few just kind of basic questions. Uh, so Dr. Sheedy, where are you from?
1: <laughs> well, I grew up in Palm Springs. And then I um, so I pretty much stayed there for a majority of my, my upbringing. And then I went up to the Bay Area. I did my undergrad degree at Berkeley. I was a chemistry major. And then uh, for grad school, I moved to Denver to do my PT degree. So, I got a doctor of physical therapy at the University of Colorado Denver. And then I stuck around there for another five years to do my PhD in neurophysiology. And then after I was done there, I came back to San Diego for a postdoc fellowship in muscle physiology and and have also since stuck around here (laughs) and now I'm faculty in orthopedic surgery.
0: So, uh, So, jumping back to like kind of the beginning, what you have accomplished so much in your career and you've come so far like doing research and everything. Um, what type of student were you in high school? Like, did you know that you wanted to do this when you were in high school or, or in the early years of like Berkeley or.
2: I
1: was a very unguided,
2: uh,
1: <laughs> I had no idea what
2: I was doing <laughs> I <love laughs> So it.
1: in high school, in high school, I think uh, probably I was a pretty good student in high school. Mm-hmm in um i think it was my junior year i had a chem my chemistry teacher was one of my favorite teachers mainly because she was like funny and entertaining <laughs> and um, and would like like stuff on fire in the lab and and that kind of thing so that was my main impetus for deciding that i wanted to be a chemistry major and um, and also I, I was kind of attracted to the fact that in the UC system, particularly at Berkeley, which was one of my top choices for undergrad, they had a specific college for chemistry, and so it was not—it was—it was like its own little program, as opposed to just being part of a larger, like, biomedical sciences or something that was kind of um, part of a larger program. They had their own kind, of, kind of little section, and and from a strategic perspective, I thought maybe that would be. An angle that I would take to get in (laughs) and it worked out so (laughs) and then once I once I got through about things for me seemed to happen about three years in into undergrad as a chemistry major and I kind of as working in a lab at the time doing some undergrad research and I I liked the people that I was working with the projects that I was working with were very cool I was working on um, developing synthetic snake venoms for uh okay. like as an alternative to things like botox and whatnot yeah um so that was kind of cool but cool. i realized at that point that i was not really into just bench work as a primary mode of um like career operations mm-hmm. imagining myself sitting in the wet lab and pipetting things for the rest of my life was not Something that at the time felt like it was right fit.
0: Yeah, it wasn't very attractive.
1: Right. Um, I was still working in the lab, and then I went home for a summer in between my junior and senior year. And I just to make some extra money, I worked in a chiropractor's office. And I was just filing, but the but the guy that worked there pretty much he he let me in he let me do the patient intakes, and he let me go into the rooms with them and kind of start, I did some basic like patient history, which probably I wasn't supposed to be doing at the time, but, <laughs> but they let me. Um, so I was doing some patient history stuff and I found that I really enjoyed the patient interaction and that kind of like hands-on approach towards things. So when I came back for my senior year, I, I kind of got the idea that I wanted to do something in patient care, but I was far too late in my undergrad career to just start over and decide that I wanted to do Mm -hmm. pre-med. So I, um, and I'd always been into athletics and sports and I had been um, a, a competitive athlete throughout the entire time that I was in college as well. So the athletic component that was incorporated with physical therapy was attractive to me along with the patient care and the prerequisites for me to be able to qualify for pt school were just like an extra couple of classes as opposed to pre med which would have been a much more extensive process. Mm-hmm. So because I decided that so late in my undergrad, I I kind of ended up getting getting into pt as a as a late decision. Um so <laughs> that was that was kind of how it worked. I mean, it was a little bit of yeah. luck and a little bit of timing and a little bit of just kind of not knowing what I was doing until it was too late to do anything else.
0: <laughs> so so, so that, that combination of kind of like you didn't want to be stuck at a lab bench and working in the chiropractor's office, you were interacting with people and seeing how he interacted with his patients. That kind of drove you to consider more of like a patient oriented career path.
3: Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then um do you do you um do you wish you had more time to pursue the pre-med route or at the time, no. <laughs> Happy with your decision?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do have to say, I do have to say, you know, once I had made the decision to go the PT route, I didn't have any, um, I didn't really have any doubts about that. And part of that was because I, the more people that I talked to about, about medicine, the more I kind of realized that the, the medical part, although the academic and didactic portion of it was super interesting to me. The actual amount of time and operationalization of medicine was not quite um, w- what the right fit for my personality. In PT, one of the things that I liked about it is you get to see the same person, you know, every week or twice a week or even three times a week, depending on what setting you're in, um, over the duration of a, a period of a longer period of time. Whereas in medicine, oftentimes, again, depending on the setting, you see someone and it's almost like the goal is to never see them again, because that means that you've done a good job. And that, that to me was a little bit less satisfying than being able to establish a, a longer term relationship where you really get to know somebody and you get to apply your skills over a longer period of time with a, with a patient relationship. So that was what was attractive to me about PT, uh, compared to a lot of the, the medical practices that I had at least talked to people about, or that was kind of my perception of medicine at the time.
0: It was less schooling too, right?
1: <laughs> um, On your
2: yeah, not that much actually. Oh, okay.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so did you end up taking like a gap year or anything since you decided so late that you wanted to go to PT school? Like, or did you just go straight into it after undergrad?
1: So in order for me to get the prerequisites that I needed, I ended up having to take an extra semester. So Mm -hmm. I finished, I graduated in four and a half years Mm -hmm. in my undergrad. And so that gave me like a six month period before the next academic year. So it wasn't really a gap year. It was just that my timing was off and I had already, um, the application cycle worked out that way because PT school actually started in, uh, like the end of April. So it wouldn't have worked out for me to, at least my PT school that I ended up um, deciding to go to. That was just how their timing worked out. So they only had like four months from when I graduated to when I started PT school. Whereas if I would have finished in May or June, I can't remember when it was that normal graduation happens in undergrad. It was a long time ago. <laughs> then I would have had to actually wait the full year because I wouldn't have been able to do both.
2: Uh, once you got to PT school, do you feel like you were prepared for it if like, like, since you weren't necessarily a pre-PT major in undergrad, like, was it overwhelming for you? Not at all, actually, and I think that was probably
1: um, in l- credit, a large part, in large part, because my undergrad was um, very challenging, and I, and I had a lot of I learned a lot in my undergraduate career. um, And I think Berkeley was a great place for teaching that to me. And so once I got to, and also the fact that chemistry wasn't quite right for me, you know, when you're not, when you're not perfectly matched to what you're interested in, you have to work all that much harder to learn it and be interested in it and like do well in it. right? So once I got to PT school, not only did I feel like it was much easier than undergraduate, but it was because I was prepared and I knew how to, how my learning style was, and I could optimize that for myself, but I was also way more interested in the topic. So it just came so much easier to me. And it was, in my opinion, it was way less challenging. Um, And I felt more than prepared because... I mean, I think the the majority of that was just my level of interest for the topic.
3: Yeah.
0: So do you think your, do you think your knowledge of chemistry in particular helped you in PT school? Or is it much more just like system, like biology based, like mechanics of movement and type of that type of stuff?
1: Honestly, so I mean, if we're talking straight didactic content, Yeah, Um, chemistry was helpful in because there's a lot of pharmacology that you have to learn, uh, even though in PT, you're not prescribing medications, you still have to understand all of that information. Um, So that was helpful. But generally speaking, this was kind of the attitude that I had about learning. And I still have this attitude about learning. And it's like, you learn stuff, but you forget it. So learn, you know, taking in content is not necessarily the, the preparative part about education. It's mm-hmm. learning how you learn to obtain information in a way that you can integrate it and apply it. And so I think that that's the part about undergrad that I applied in grad school, not necessarily the topic matter, whether it was biology or chemistry or kinesiology or any of those specific like didactic components. It was the, it was the actual critical thinking development and process and integration that was the thing that kept me, uh, basically going and Mm. able to function better in that environment.
0: So, um, how did you ended up at the university of Colorado in Denver, right? How did you, how did you choose that school? Did it like fit with your, uh, kind of like your, goals or was it more so if it with your academics or
1: this is also another um <laughs> this is also another like, random whatever decision in my life um so my parents met in colorado okay. and i didn't really feel like i wanted to stay in california like not because i it it was mainly just one of those things that i had stayed in california for my undergrad and i um, there were plenty of schools that I would have been happy to go to, but I wanted to, um, kind of explore and spread my wings and do all that kind of thing. And, and, but I also didn't want to go all the way to the East coast because when you grow up in Southern California, it just doesn't work that, that way. in terms <laughs> of, Yeah. Of weather, I mean, location and weather preferences and whatnot mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, extracurriculars and, and those types of things, the sports that I did were, I could have done anywhere. So, and I did, and I stayed competitive even through grad school. So that was, that was less of an issue as a decision-making process for me. Um, and so it was more just that I had this seed in my head about Colorado and my parents loved it and they met there and I was, and they were like, Oh, cool. That sounds like a great place. And I was like, Oh, maybe I should look into that. (laughs) And so I applied and I got in and I went there to interview and I really liked it. So I had a great experience when I, when I came to visit and, and did the interviews and that,
2: that basically was what sealed the deal for me. Cool. So did you apply to any other programs or was like, were you pretty much set on Colorado?
1: No, I mean, I did the, I did the full gamut. I applied all over the place. um, And I I'm trying to remember the schools that I got into. The ones that I remember, like my top, I think my top five ended up being UCSF, Duke, uh, USC, Colorado, and um, there was one other, I think it was like Washington or something. I can't really remember. And um, and I ended up choosing Colorado, I think because coming from a place Berkeley where there was a lot of emphasis on we have a big name and therefore we you owe us we don't owe you anything um colorado had a different had a little bit of a different attitude about that it was a lot more it was a lot smaller of a program and they were a little bit more um i don't know friendly in their (laughs) approach towards things yeah. Like, I, for example, Duke, I mean, Duke is an amazing program. But when I went there, it, it very much felt like they were entitled to my acceptance, mm-hmm. as opposed to they would, they were looking out for my best interests. And I was a little bit over that mentality coming from Berkeley as an undergrad. Um, so I think that was just kind of uh, like a place that I was in my attitude and my perspectives at the time <laughs> that
0: all right, so uh, I just wanted to kind of jump back real quick. Uh, you keep saying that you're in competitive sports, and uh, I did find on the internet, I did a little bit of searching, Oh god. and I found um, this great image of you oh. holding like a belt <laughs> as uh, the queen of combat grappling back, <laughs> back in 2009. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> <for> <laughs> I never knew that you did MMA.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I, (laughs) I got into, I I actually started as I did, I started doing judo and I started doing that in high school. And part of that was because my dad was a judo instructor and he, um, he kind of got me into it and we trained together when I was younger and whatnot. And then I kind of continued doing judo throughout my undergrad. I did that competitively. Um, and then when I went to grad school, that transitioned because when I went to grad school, I was like, Oh, well, I just, I did the competitive thing. I just want to do this as a hobby now. And then so I found this, I found this club that was mainly just close to my house. And it was an MMA club. And I ended up being like way better at MMA than I ever was at judo. <laughs> And hence started my MMA career. <laughs> yeah,
3: wow! <laughs>
1: so I I did that for another. I mean, let's see. I started PT school in 2006 or something like that. So I did MMA MMA until uh, 2000. I think my my last my last tournament was like 2013 or something like that. So I did it for almost another nine years or something like that.
0: Crazy. Do you think that um, do you think that contributed to like your love of PT?
1: Um. I kind of consider those two things as separate entities in terms okay. of interest. But I do have to say that my comfort level with uh, with, like physical movement and I mean, MMA is a contact sport. Mm. You have to learn how to move people and you have to be very comfortable touching people and having people touch you. And I think that that gave me in some ways a little bit of an advantage um, because I was very comfortable with, with that physicality component of PT. Um, And I think that some people struggled with that. I actually remember there was one person in our class that was very uncomfortable with touching people to do a physical exam and PT in a lot of ways is one of the more physical professions Mm -hmm. in medicine. And so she ended up dropping out because she just really didn't feel comfortable with that level of contact with people. Um, so I think that as an example, I, I, that wasn't even anything that I worried about at all. Cause I, I had no problem with it. <laughs> if anything, I had to be careful because I had to learn <laughs> to be respectful. About you know,
3: other people's
2: <laughs> So Did you ever end up having to go to PT, like during your career in MMA? Yeah,
1: I, um, I think it was like my second year in PT school. I, I tore my labrum in my hip. And so I had to go to PT for a little while, um, in that, but at that time I was already like, you know,
2: PT school. yeah,
1: I was already in yeah. PT school. So of course I was asking a bunch of questions and I was like, how come you're doing it this way?
3: And <laughs> I, really love I that. wouldn't
1: say that, I wouldn't say, I mean, I think a lot of people when they go to PT school and this was something that I saw, cause when I was, um, When I was doing my PhD, I also worked closely in the PT department as part of their admissions committee. So I interviewed a lot of people. I read a lot of essays for people that were incoming PT students. And like the inevitable essay is, you know, I, I became interested in PT because I hurt myself doing X, Y, or Z. And I went to PT and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And that was not that was not my story <laughs> my story was the more of that like chiropractor thing and it was kind of like the strange version of 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 like just not wanting to be in a wet lab so um i think i had a little bit of a non-traditional exposure to pt or lack thereof prior to applying
2: <laughs> so did you ever like volunteer or like work in a pt setting before you went to pt school like as a part of application and stuff, I know a lot of schools require like volunteer hours and stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that was still a, a that was a requirement for when I applied as well, and I think they still have those requirements. Um, so I had to at, at the very minimum have my you know uh, my volunteer hours in for the purposes of the application. Um, so I worked. I'm. I worked in a couple of different settings, settings, but primarily I worked in a um, like an outpatient neuro rehab unit, hmm. and and they primarily worked with uh, like stroke patients. Okay. So that was my that was the the setting that I got most of my ex- exposure in. I I didn't really have that much exposure to like outpatient orthopedics or med or anything like that it was primarily this kind of very niche field um and i did i mean i did a couple of other things because you have to have your your diverse little settings to to apply but um the majority of my time i spent in outpatient neural rehab cool
0: so um so like through your journey in pt school and and then eventually kind of being in the admissions seat and like reading essays do you have any advice for for pre-pt students now like like insider tips, like here's yeah, how to absolutely. write your essays.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are those are always the most important things, right? So I would say from um from an essay perspective, I kind of mention the fact that you know, I read a lot of essays that are like, I became interested in PT because I hurt myself and ended up in PT. Mm-hmm. That is a very repetitive theme that we see and we're bored by <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So if you can bring a little bit more creativity into that perspective because I, I mean, it's a true story for a lot of people, which doesn't mean that it should be discounted, but it just requires a little bit more um, a little bit more effort into bringing a little bit of a perspective that might be unique to you in that story because the story itself is not unique and it's in Mm -hmm. fact 90 percent of what we read in in essays so in order for me to remember what you wrote or for it to stick out to me like make it something different or make it uh a way to show some characteristic about you that is not just a series of adjectives and and whatnot that people like to put in those essays but something That you actually believe in and are passionate about and that's and that's I think one of the things that people don't realize when they're writing those essays because they don't know whatever what That the the person is reading over and over again (laughs) Over you know 200 applications and it just gets it gets really repetitive. So trying to get something unique in there is is probably a good way to start Make sure when you get your letters of recommendation that you are um, that you are being intentional about the people that you're asking, it's way better to get a letter of recommendation for someone from someone who may not necessarily be in the field um, that gives you a very good and personal recommendation as compared to someone who might have like a bigger name or be exactly in the area that you want to be in um, but gives you a little bit more of a bland recommendation. I mean, I had like, I'll give you an example. There was a person who, um, they had a letter of recommendation and, and the, the person who was writing it for them was a very well-known scientist, PT, um, had, had done a ton of great work, but the, it was very clear that the attention that that person gave to writing that letter was much much lower than like the other letters and i think even one of the comments they they wrote in there was like you know this person was good in x y and z and like they forgot to delete the x y and z and actually input the things that the person was good at (laughs) so like clearly that person just didn't spend that much time on their letter of recommendation and that just looks bad so it's better to make sure that you have letters that are That are strong and intentional, even if they're not from the people that are like strongest that you would think are the strongest in the field or would make the biggest impact. Ideally, you would have both. But if you if you were to choose, make sure it's someone who is going to spend the time to be careful.
0: So, um, so You graduated PT school and now you're in Colorado getting your PhD and what made you decide to stay in Colorado and, and get your PhD? And, and were you working at the same time, like in a PT clinic? Or what was that kind of journey like?
2: Yeah,
1: so um, when I finished PT school, I the last year of PT school, I was trying to make some money because PT school in Colorado, particularly when you're out of state, is super expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started working in a lab. And the the woman that I whose lab I was working in um, after I finished, she was like, well, you know, you're, you've got, you started with this project and it, it's actually turned into this great project. You you should probably stay on and at least finish it.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, you know, I still had to take a few months because the boards weren't available. Like I could fly. So I had a couple of, um, I had a couple of months and I was like, well, I might as well just stay on and work and finish this project. And, and they hired me on as a research assistant. And then I ended up, and then I took boards, got a job in the clinic. Um, I, I uh, got a job at, at an outpatient orthopedic clinic that specialized in spine. Mm. And, um, and then I just continued working part-time mm-hmm. as a research assistant. And then after about six months of that, the, the woman that I was working for in research was like, well, you know, you're really doing what a PhD would do. So you might as well just apply and get a PhD because you, you, right now you're getting paid for it, but you could be getting a degree for it and I was like no I don't I really don't want I don't want to do this like I I don't want to go to school again <laughs> and then, you know it's going to be tricky because then I'm going back to school and I'm not making as much money as I could as a clinician and and that type of a deal and but I kept doing it and then finally she was like Bahar, like either you know you got to make a decision here, either do the PhD or like, it doesn't make any sense. So finally I was like, okay, I guess I'll do the PhD. I mean, she just sucked me in. I don't know how, I don't know how it happened. So then, I, so I had like a year um, where I didn't, where I was doing research as an, as a, as an RA. And then this whole, the whole time I was working also simultaneously in the clinic. Um, and then I officially started as a PhD student <laughs> a year later and so it took me, you know, three and a half years to finish my PhD. PhDs typically, as you guys probably know, take a little bit longer, but because yeah. I had a head start from even when I was in PT school, I finished it in quite a shorter amount of time. And the whole time I was working, so I worked in the clinic for seven years because that was pretty much the duration of time over the course of like finishing, finishing PT school, uh, having that little like gap year where I was doing research, but also in the clinic and then starting my PhD and then finishing my PhD and then waiting to transition into a postdoc that whole time I was practicing. Um, So that was kind of the the way that I was able to uh, incorporate both things. And, And the PhD program was very gracious in allowing me to do that because normally you're not really allowed to practice while you're doing a PhD at the same time. -hmm. Um, so my program was pretty much like, well, as long as you're getting your work done, which they were very um protective of making sure that I met my benchmarks. They were like, as long as you're getting your work done, you can still, we don't care what you do on the side. But I was like three days a week in the clinic. So it wasn't really on the side. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I just worked my ass off. And that was that was how it that was how it happened.
0: So, So. So what was your PhD? Um, like what were you studying? What was your it's a PhD is a thesis, correct?
1: Yeah, so um, a dissertation.
0: A dissertation, okay. Um,
1: my dissertation was on the the transition between acute and chronic pain in people who were developing cr- neck pain, essentially. So, I studied pain processing mechanisms, so how the brain and the spinal cord uh, adapt to develop pathways that, that end up in a chronic pain phenotype. And the the particular population that I was looking at was office workers who developed chronic neck pain. So that was kind of, and I did a lot of, as a part of that, I was looking at a lot of risk factors that involved motor control. So movement patterns, I did a lot of EMG type studies where we were measuring muscle activation patterns and posture, and also all of these neurophysiological um measures that that kind of look at people's pain tolerance and pain perception and there was a lot of psychology there we did like um psychological manipulations where we would where we would play good cop bad cop to stress people out and see if it changed their pain patterns i mean it yeah. spanned a lot of different disciplines actually um which was very cool and it prepped me for a lot of different types of research moving forward um, and throughout all that, I didn't have to get back on a bench. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but do you think, do you think your PhD informed your uh, practice at all?
3: Absolutely.
1: 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, using
0: like what you were learning in the lab, like in the clinic, like right then and there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the biggest draws to doing the PhD and why I actually decided to end up doing it. Because I was in this really great position where I was in the clinic. I had questions in the clinic that I couldn't answer. I could go to the lab and try to answer them. Some of those things are easy to to answer quickly. And some of those things take a long time to answer. I would find out some portion of the answer or, or all of the answer, take it back to the clinic. And at the time I was also, I mean, as part of the PhD, I had teaching requirements too. So I was teaching in the PT school as well. So I had this like nice circle where I was in the clinic practicing, learning how to answer questions that I had about clinical questions and then teaching it and then being able to apply it back in the clinic. So it was like this perfect rewarding circle of being able to apply all of the areas of knowledge that you might ever want. It was great.
0: (laughs) So having all that knowledge, were you able to, like address gaps in the in the physical therapy kind of uh curriculum and say like we need like we need to figure this out or like we need to to study this more
1: yeah i think so i mean i i actually um developed a like a seminar series as part of our um our neuroscience track to specifically teach about chronic pain mechanisms and treatment strategies associated with um, with how to deal with that. Because I think it was like a very new field at the time. Now it's gotten a lot farther, but um, it was very new and people just weren't thinking like that at the time. So it was really nice to be able to actually incorporate that as part of a formal educational piece back into their curriculum. And that has since stayed um, in their curriculum. I don't know who's teaching it now, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) hopefully they're doing it right.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they are. I see a question about, um, the transition between Colorado and California practice in that chat in terms (laughs) of that. Um, yeah, in terms of that, that's super easy. I mean, you like, Board exams are national, so you don't have to do anything with that. That's like any any board exam. Um, but the for certain states, because the laws are different, it's it's actually kind of like law. you you have to take a jurisprudence exam to practice in certain states where the laws might be more or less stringent. And California is definitely one of those states where the laws are are extremely complicated about um, what you can and can't do in your scope of practice. And it's probably one of the more restricted States for scope of practice. And for a PT, there are like, I could do a lot more things in Colorado as a PT than I can here in California. Mm -hmm. Um, not, not in a way that's, I think, super limiting, but it's just kind of annoying. Um, so I, I had to take a jurisprudence exam and go through like fingerprinting and that kind of a deal. But other than that, that was pretty much that was pretty much it. A little bit of paperwork in the test.
0: So so you you finished your PhD and then you came to, to UCSD to do a postdoc. Did you continue to uh, to do physical therapy and like work in clinics?
2: No.
1: I mean, when I came to do my postdoc, it was not as flexible as my PhD where, where there was um, a lot of time or options to work Multiple days a week in the clinic while trying to do a fellowship. I mean, it was it was meant to be intensive, and my goal was to learn a lot in a very short period of time. And my postdoc was back to bench, so I was doing things, as you know, Brad, <laughs> that involve um, that do involve a little bit of pipetting and involve some some bench work, and that had been a very long time since I had done any of that. And it was a very different way of thinking than I had been spending over the last decade prior. Um, so I it was a steep learning curve. And I don't think that I had made kind of a decision to focus most of my time on optimizing that learning experience, because postdocs are typically, they're short. They're a couple of years max. Um, and I didn't want to spend a ton of time in a postdoc position where I, I just wanted to Optimize my time. So I didn't practice during that time, even though I probably could have like on the weekends or PRN or something like that.
2: So did you ever like go back to physical therapy after that? Or like, do you miss it compared to bench work? <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, first of all, I mean, the, the good thing about now is I don't consider myself back to bench work at the moment. There is a lot of stuff that I get to do, um, that incorporates a lot of the different different components of what I learned in my PhD and in the clinic and in the in the wet lab. Um, so I have a basic science arm to my research. I have advanced imaging um, and quantitative sensory testing and pain processing um, projects that I do. And then there's a clinical component where I um, am in the clinics with patients. I'm not necessarily treating, but I'm in the, in the PT clinics with patients, um, and measuring outcomes and trying to modify treatments to optimize those outcomes. And then even sometimes in the OR, uh, with surgical patients and trying to like, figure out what's going on. That's a little bit attached to the basic science because we do biopsy type studies, but, mm-hmm. um, but it, the exposure there is pretty broad and the application of that science is also pretty broad. So although I'm not in practice at the moment, I'm still exposed to patients in a way that still makes it satisfying to me. But I do miss, I do miss like the traditional practice model for sure.
0: Do you ever think you're going to go back to practicing? Cuz at some point in here you kind of made the decision to to stick with research. I'm going to Yeah. Say
2: I would
1: like to. I think that um I think that there is probably I have to find the right avenue for it because right now UCSD I mean one of the one of the reasons that I haven't up to this point is that UCSD's model, I mean UCSD doesn't have a PT school and UCSD's model is, and the PT department is an entirely separate different department from PR, which is where uh, PT is housed at UCSD. So in order to be able to work, there's some logistics uh, issues there that I've been trying to figure out how, um, how and when the best strategies are to be able to incorporate those things in a way that doesn't make it more trouble than it's worth. So I think it's just a matter of, Timing and strategy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's a process, especially mm-hmm. with PTSD. I figured it out. <laughs> so, um, around 2017, uh, you ended up writing a grant and studying uh, the 3D quantification of exercise induced recruitment in pathological paraspinal muscles. Where did this interest come from? You were the principal investigator. Um, and, like, how, what was that like?
1: Um. I started working primarily on basic science types of applications to um, muscle physiology and looking at the changes in back muscle health in people who had low back pain, essentially. And the the biology part of it was the strength of the lab that I was coming into as a postdoc. And there was also an imaging component. So there was some MRI work being done at the time in that lab. Um, and that work was was um, fairly well developed, but also not necessarily being applied um, in the way that in the way that that project could could have used it to be applied. And so that was kind of the impetus for writing that um, grant. I actually was like, sitting on a train. I had done this, um, I'd gone to Switzerland to do like a, vi- a visiting postdoc.
0: Balgris,
3: uh, right? <laughs> and
1: I, and, and in there in Switzerland, the university of Balgris, that's where I had gone to do that. They, their, their chair is a spine surgeon and he had a lot of questions and they had some really good imaging people there that are very well known in the area of spine for imaging. And, and so I like distinctly remember sitting on a train and like having a conversation about this idea and then coming home and writing the grant. <laughs> or actually, I don't even think I had come home and write, wrote the grant. I literally wrote the specific aims page while I was in Switzerland and sent it to the program officer at the NIH. And I was like, is this a cool idea? And they were like, yeah, sure, submit it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So, so what exactly, because I think there's kind of a lot of ambiguity about what a principal investigator is, especially like in the pre-med community, you always hear other people talking about like my PI or like my PI, blah blah blah. Yeah. What, what exactly is a principal investigator?
1: The person who gets the money.
0: The person who gets the money. So they're <laughs> so they're the one that's in charge of that specific research project.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, the way that the way that grants are kind of structured, it's um, pr- pretty much the way that it works is whoever submits the grant is the person who had, theoretically, is the person who uh, generated the majority of the idea and is submitting it under their name as like, this is this is my idea and I I am going to ask for money for this idea.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Just like any other project, you're never in isolation. It's never only my idea. It's never, I'm the only person who ever thought of this in life. Like there are a bunch of people there. It takes a village to put all this stuff together. And so oftentimes the PI is, is given a, a lot of the credit for that, but it's actually like there are these, I mean, science is collaborative these days, right? So you have co-investigators and you have MPIs, which are multiple, multiple PI grants where you share PI-ship across three or four people or however many people it takes to, to complete uh, an, an idea um, and sometimes that makes sense because you have one person who's like, well, I'm an imaging expert. And then you have another person who's like, well, I'm a psychology expert. And you have a third person who's like, well, I'm a surgeon. And, and all those three people need to co- contribute their expertise and their skills to be able to generate the overarching idea for a grant. And so that's based on those types of scenarios, the PI decision is made, but ultimately the PI the named PI is the person who gets the funding and allocates or decides how to use the money for the for the grant. That's interesting. <laughs>
0: I never knew that. There's um, a whole like, so,
1: business side of this that like nobody taught me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I never, no one tells you that in pre-med. No. <laughs> so flash forward to today and uh, I think you have something like, like 15 papers that have been published. Um, okay. How many... So how many do you have in the works currently? Just kind of an ambiguous question. And then um, do you feel like your papers have all kind of built off of each other? Or are they all like standalone in some way? Or like, is there some question behind all of the papers that you're kind of trying to answer?
1: So to answer your first question, how many? I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I mean, I, I feel like I have a bunch of stuff that's like in progress right now. And that's how things go. It's like you go in phases where one year and I don't know. I mean, sometimes you, you can find on Google Scholar or whatever, where it shows you like how many publications a year you have or whatnot. And, and I think particularly because I'm kind of like a younger investigator, that that line is a little bit more obvious, but you can see like it's super like phasic. Sometimes you'll be working on a project and you're not publishing that much about the project because it takes a while to get your results and analyze them and get them together. And then all of a sudden you'll have this like year where you have four or five papers in a year and then you won't have anything the next year. And it, it's just like all over the place. So um, so I think I think that I don't really have a good sense for where I'm at in, in any of those like distinct project phases um, with the exception of like, I mean, progress. You just have to know that you're moving forward, right?
3: Yeah.
1: The expectation when you're a PhD student is you have to publish a paper a year. It's maybe like one or two, you are, you know, you're learning a new skill. So it takes a little bit longer to get that ramped up. And then once you're a faculty, then the expectation starts to increase. You should be publishing three or four. And then that that should be kind of like a consistent upward trajectory as you as you continue to advance in your in your promotions and whatnot. So that's kind of the standard for um, for like expectation in terms of publications there. In terms of like idea pathways for publications and whether there's underlying questions and how that all works, I would say, I have an umbrella theme, which is fine. That's a super broad umbrella theme. When I and and I had a very kind of discreet uh, pathway of publication that had to do with neurophysiology of chronic pain in spine during my PhD, and then the one of the points of doing a fellowship is you want to do something completely different and learn a very different set of skills than what you learned in your PhD. So by nature, you kind of have to switch gears and not follow your trajectory. Because otherwise, why would you do a postdoc? You're not learning any new skills. You would just go straight to a faculty position and do what it is that you learned. And a lot of people actually do that. Um, It's just harder to get grant funding that way if you don't have a fellowship, because it basically shows that you're unidimensional. Not that that's a terrible thing. It just means that some people will stick with their thing, and they just take it all the way. But the postdoc is is specifically designed to broaden your skill set. So you'll see a, a lot of people have a very discrete set of papers in their PhD, and then once they move forward from a postdoc on, then that sh- that shifts quite dramatically, and then and then they'll have like like from there on out, it should all be connected pretty much. And so I would say that my my um, publication record it follows fairly well that kind of model. Um, although I'm trying to kind of circle back and find more like, here's my PhD work and here's my postdoc work. And now I'm kind of trying to, to make it all meet in the middle and then take that into a publication career trajectory set of questions that is long-term because if you're just answering little questions here and there, that number one, that doesn't give you longevity from a funding perspective, because the NIH wants big questions. They want big scope. They want long-term, um, impact and they want a 10 year trajectory. They want to be able to see that in your grants. So if you don't have that in your, in your vision, then they're not going to give you money for it. Cause they want you to have like a, they want you to have a career based on their investment. Um, so I would say that that's kind of the goal is to make sure that you do have an umbrella topic that you are able to, I mean, you can branch out a little bit here and there, but you should have a very clear vision that is is um, visible in your publication record.
0: So out of all the papers that you do have that you remember <laughs> publishing, what was your um, what was your most favorite or like your most exciting to like research and write about? and or or perhaps, like, which one do you think has made the most impact?
1: Oh, those are two very different questions. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I have two papers that I really like. And I, I don't have a good sense. Impact is a hard question for me to answer because I'm biased. And, of course, I think that the stuff I do is super cool and yeah. should have like, impact. <laughs> so it's a really yeah. hard question for me to answer about impact. Um, I would say the, the most enjoyable for me to write and the most rewarding or the most, yeah, the most enjoyable and most rewarding was the paper that came out of my thesis or my dissertation, which was on, um, psychological, neurophysiological and physical risk factors for developing neck pain. That was super rewarding for obvious reasons. I mean, I'd spent a ton of time working on that paper I had collected data on 200 some people just for like one portion of that. I think it ended up being more than more like 500 people total. If you just add up, like it was a ton of work. And so getting that out there was a really, it it was like a personal, personally rewarding experience scientifically and all that. I also think it was a good product. Of course, I'm biased (laughs) on that, but it was, it was just like, you know, um the other paper that I that I really like and I think is impact is again yet to be determined because it's brand new, is a paper that I just recently got published on um like the cells involved in muscle degeneration in people that have spine disease. And that one was also what a paper that t- was about three years in the making because we kept trying these things and and it was one of those like I'm exaggerating here, but it was one of those like penicillin <laughs> discoveries. It was an accidental thing where like, I looked at it. We, we were looking at a bunch of just histology of muscle in people it, who we had spine biopsies from. And, and we were like, well, what's that? Like that, that I've never seen that before. That's kind of a strange thing. And we just chased it and it was not something we were expecting to see. It was something that popped up and Chased it for three years, and this paper finally came out of it. So I would say the the coolest papers and most enjoyable papers for me to write are the ones that have been the hardest to get, like to get the result out, and they're also the most rewarding because they've taken so much effort.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what are you currently researching?
1: So um, I have three. Brad, you should be able to answer this question. Sure. <laughs> Um, so I have three, three branches of research that I'm focusing on. One of them is looking at the, the, um, molecular mechanisms for muscle degeneration, which essentially means in people who have low back pain or spinal pathology, their muscles kind of start to degrade and their muscles degrade in a very specific pattern. And we're trying to understand what the cellular mechanisms are underlying that pattern. So that's one of the areas of research that I'm looking at that Brad's also looking at in detail. Um, Another area of research is, as I mentioned, I think before the advanced imaging component, which is trying to use because the molecular and cell biology is invasive. You have to get, get tissue from somebody. And that is not easy. I mean, you try to convince someone that you want to take a chunk out of their, their spine while they're getting surgery. And, Sometimes it's not the easiest thing to do, even, even in the name of science, people are a little bit wary of that. <laughs> um, so advanced imaging is an opportunity to be able to look at some of the same features, but using fancy fancy MRI physics and tools and MRIs and uh, things like that, that allow us to look at, at things in a lot of detail that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do without being very invasive. So that's another avenue that I'm looking at is developing imaging tools that allow us to understand um, biology of muscle health in detail. And then the third arm of research is very clinical, where um, I'm looking at specifically the clinical outcomes for different types of exercise and interventions along the rehabilitation, the course of rehabilitation in people who are either um, getting managed conservatively for low back pain or have had surgery and are and are recovering from surgery. Um, so trying to optimize, like, what are the exercise doses? What, uh, what kind of range of motion um, do we want to put them in? Is there a certain subpopulation of patients that does better with this type of exercise versus that type of exercise or no, no exercise? Those types of things are larger, more population-based studies that deal with electronic medical records and pulling data from clinics uh, around town that basically implement these practices on a daily basis.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. It's mostly geared towards lower back pain at this point. Yes. Huh? Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And then there's a, <laughs> I, for, I keep forgetting. Um, there's also, there's also, I mean, I, I kind of lump this in with the advanced imaging part, but there's a Uh, a branch of research where, you know, I had mentioned that I'm trying to kind of meet my two, my two worlds of pain, chronic pain, and, uh, and this kind of muscle physiology world together. And uh, one of the places that we're applying that is in um, looking at brain activity and the correlation between brain activity and muscle health and spine health in, in vets who have had undergone traumatic brain injury that have post traumatic headache a lot of times those people have neck injuries that are not are not appropriately diagnosed because the TBI or the traumatic brain injury gets kind of put at the forefront of treatment and they're managed like pharmacologically but they're not really they're not really considered to have another injury outside of the brain. So that's another project that's it's an example of bringing those two worlds together where we're doing a bunch of pain testing and brain Function and then also looking at these um, biological and imaging-based measures of the spine.
0: Really, to understand all the underlying like mechanisms and stuff that go into back pain and exactly pain injury and all
2: that. Pain in general, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a, <big> um, <laughs> I have a question from somebody. This is kind of jumping back to the topic of physical therapy, but um, do you have any advice for people listening? Who are aiming to go on to PT school, like just kind of a sign, I guess, that they're going
1: on the right path. I think that there are a couple of things that I would that I would definitely recommend. One of them is, of course, something that you would already have to do if you were applying for PT school, and that's getting into a clinic and volunteering and exposing yourself to not just a single setting, but all sorts of different settings. I think a lot of people expose themselves to what they think is PT, and, and that primarily manifests itself in outpatient orthopedics. That's the most mm-hmm. common setting that people associate with PT, but PT does burns, they do inpatient, they do neuro, they do peds. I mean, there's so much stuff that that physical therapy encompasses that a lot of people don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that getting into a variety of clinical settings will help help people make that decision. Um, And secondarily, I would have a very good understanding of the financial implications of that particular um, career choice. I think that PTs in general, just like many allied health professionals are underpaid for the knowledge that they're expected to learn and the education they're expected to pay for. So um, that becomes disillusioning if you don't know that already. So just make sure you know what you're getting into, because if if you think that you're getting a doctorate and you should be paid like a doctorate, that's not going to happen. Um, so I think that understanding what, like, you can, and you can look that stuff up super easily. Like, what are the average pay rates for any given geographical location and, and setting and whatnot? And so understanding that that what the pros and cons to that are and accepting that, I think are uh, are important things to make a decision about whether that works for you.
0: Uh, so just a few final questions, because I know that we're coming up. You have a class at 6, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um So this is just kind of a broad takeaway. So you're, you're a trained physical therapist and uh, a spine researcher. And I think right now, more than ever, your expertise comes in handy because of how much people are sitting at home. Um, Does prolonged sitting have negative effects on posture, spine health or back pain or, you know, what what advice do you have for people at home to
1: Um, mitigate uh, those effects? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is variety. Uh, There is actually no data that supports that poor posture is a risk factor for developing pain. In fact, there are plenty of people that have really awful posture that never develop pain. And that's just a thing. And so that's why I say variety, because I think there has been a lot of, there's been a lot of, particularly like in the nineties, there was a lot of stuff on ergonomics and what are the exact angles that you have to sit at at your desk to make sure that you're decreasing stress and whatnot. And all of that has pretty much been debunked. The only place where that becomes a significant you know, risk factor is if you're like a mechanic and you're working in awkward positions. I would not consider sitting at a computer, an awkward position. Um, so in terms of like postural risk factors and, and those types of things to try to make sure that you're, you're not putting yourself at additional risk, it's, it's not all that complicated, just move around every once in a while, but you don't have to worry about like, I have to, you know, have this angle and look straight ahead and make sure that my neck is exactly right. And my shoulders are all even and everything like that doesn't really matter. And also, don't stress yourself out. If you're stressed out, you're going to have pain. and has nothing to do with musculoskeletal issues. It has everything to do with the fact that you're overly stressed out and, and your physiology responds to that. So, I mean, a lot of that is just common sense. And this is another frustrating thing about PT is that, like, you are overeducated to administer common sense strategies to people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think the big takeaway is, is just kind of stay moving. Yeah, stay moving and de-stress any way that you can. <laughs> do you, yeah, so what, and, do you, what do you normally do to
1: stay healthy? Yeah, and don't think too hard about trying to be perfect. Like if you're, tr- <laughs> I, I I have treated so many people that they come into my office and they're like, but I do everything perfectly. Like I sit exactly like this and I don't move. And I'm like, but that's your problem. Like you're perfect, but you don't move, and so your perfect muscles that are working to keep you in that perfect position are overworking and so you you no matter what you're doing you're kind of you're kind of at a loss so that's kind of one of those things where where you just just like every other thing that health condition that pops up the the best answer is always to kind of to mix things up and everything in moderation and exercise is good and yeah. i mean that's why we're on this spot in the big
0: takeaway we really like exercise um do you do you have any from the PT side of things do you have any advice for people who might have back pain and and it's becoming like worse or like from just being at home and not being able to to I don't know get out and move like are there exercises or stretches that people can do at home to to help alleviate that
1: um well I think that that Probably depends on sources of back pain. One of the hard things about back pain is it's really tricky to figure out actual like anatomical pain generator is meaning what structure might be causing you pain in the back. Cause it can be muscle, it can be disc, it can be joints, it can be all sorts of things. And other areas aren't necessarily that complicated, which is why spine is so cool. Um, but generally speaking, you know, if you're, if your aerobic activity is, probably one of the best preventative measures, Um, even though it's not like a back-specific type of exercise. um, Because the back is primarily made up of stabilizing muscles, aerobic exercise is is a good way to make sure that you're keeping those muscles um, from getting overworked and they're going to work anyway, but they're not going to be like overworked in any given area. If you, that, that advice changes, if you end up having a very specific injury, if you have, you know, a certain injury, like a disc herniation, I might choose to do um, a certain type of strengthening or stretching, whereas if you have stenosis or uh, something that is more neurogenic in nature, we have a nerve injury, a nerve pinch, I might choose to do something else. So the, the recommendations for what stretches or exercise or types of things to do vary a lot, depending on what we think the source of, of, of tissue injury or pain is.
0: Well, very cool. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, do you have any final thoughts or comments to our listeners? Well, I mean, other
1: than my my plug for exercise is medicine already, right? Like, does that, <laughs> be like good? Um, I mean, as a PT, I feel like I'm obligated to say that, but you guys already say it for me, so I don't really have to do it. Just make sure you're, make sure you stay moving. And, and I'm also happy to answer any questions. I know that there, are like, if there are people that are um, interested in the PT school route and they have questions about, you know, what, what the application processes like and how to optimize your applications and whatnot. Like I've I've done that for quite a few years and I can give a lot of um, of tips and advice if that's helpful for people. So I'm happy to have people contact me individually to if they have questions about those types of things as well.
0: Yeah, maybe I mean maybe sometime in the future we can have you back on just to talk like specifically about sure. like how to get into PT school or something.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Well,
0: yeah, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, I know that you have an incredibly busy schedule, and I know that we and all of our listeners really appreciate your time, uh, and it was a pleasure.
3: Thanks. Thank
0: you. Hope you have a great day. You too. Yay. Um,
3: Okay, also.
0: Oh, yeah, and our outro. (laughs) We're still live. Thank you for keeping us on, Alan. So um, be sure to check out the past video podcast available on our YouTube channel, Exercise Medicine at UCSD. Uh, and check out our socials, uh, eim.ucsd on Instagram and eim.ucsd on Facebook. Uh, we are also starting a fundraiser to raise donations for the WHO COVID Relief Fund. Uh, so go check it out on our social media. And uh, lastly, please subscribe to our newsletter. The link is in our Facebook page and will be in the description of the video below. Uh, it's a free and fun weekly read for anything from common injuries to interesting exercises to healthy recipes. to good for the week. And uh, just one last plug. Uh, our podcast this podcast just recently got into apple podcast so you can go and subscribe and listen to just the audio if you'd like Uh, it's under exercises medicine at ucsd so uh we will see you guys next week